Hello, and thanks for joining our podcast. Today, we've got a special guest, Mark Butler, Labor Environment and Climate Change Spokesman. Um, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. You've written a book, Climate Wars, um, chronicling, I guess, the last 10 years of climate policy, which has been a bit of a train crash by um, any any calculation, um, and also looking to the way you see things coming up in the future. Look, my first question is, congratulations on writing the book, but where on earth did you find the time? Uh, summer, summer holidays. And, and, and it's, uh, it's my second book. The first I wrote a couple of years ago on ageing policy was quite a bit harder. Um, this really reflected work that I do every day in climate change and energy policy anyway. So this is something I think about constantly. So it was really just getting a, a number of weeks um, with the workload a bit lower over the summer holidays to actually sit down at a computer. Oh, well, good for you. And uh, what made you want to write the book? Well, I, I thought it was important at a, at a bit of a staging post in this policy area um, after Tony Abbott has moved on, hopefully for the last time, out of the Prime Ministership, uh, and uh, trying to look forward uh, after the Paris Agreement about what position Australia would take on climate policy. I mean, Labor uh, put out a very detailed policy at the last election, and I wanted to do two things. First of all, obviously burnish Labor's credentials in this area, firstly in climate policy in particular, but more generally in the area of major economic reforms in the Hawke and Keating tradition. And I do see this as a very major whole of economy reform. Mm. Obviously, I wanted to burnish Labor's credentials there, but also I just wanted generally to make a bit of a call to arms because I think climate change and energy policy over the past 10 years has been steered into this parallel universe uh, largely by Tony Abbott, but really by forces behind Tony Abbott, many of them in the business community, in the media, and in the right wing of the coalition itself. And, and it's going to take quite an effort to steer climate and energy policy out of that parallel universe into the sort of discourse that we do see in the United Kingdom in many other countries that we usually compare ourselves to. Yeah, no, it's interesting you talk about that and, and those forces which are behind it. Um, you talk about business and there's no doubt that business has pushed back, but you also note that business is always going to turn it, it's, it's, it's going to talk its book at every opportunity, but once they're actually faced with a policy and there is consistency, they, they adapt, they move. I guess well, they didn't, say, they didn't say much in 2011, 2012, and I think, I think um, I think we do face a different approach from the business community in its broader sense. I mean, you can't just generalise. The business community is not one indivisible whole in no, Australia. True. But, mm. but, but uh, I think the, the view of most of the business community, other than those that have very huge amounts of skin in the game, like the fossil fuel sector, is very different now to the, the attitude we faced four or five years ago when the Labor government was putting in place the clean energy package, where there was very strong opposition, not just to the detail of our package, but in many quarters of the business community, it appeared that they signed up to this idea that Tony Abbott was pushing, that you could just get rid of a climate change policy framework in its entirety. And I think that's, that's the mistake that too many people made five years ago. Yeah. Look, as you say, and um, you, you pick up this wonderful line from uh, what Malcolm Turnbull wrote in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, I think, in 2010 or 2011, basically. Um, what was it? Um, Abbott's climate policy is bullshit. Um, so cutting no finer point on it. We're still stuck with <laughs> He was that. a very angry man at that time, I think. <laughs> he was a very angry man, but he's still got the same policy. Um, how, how has this happened? Well, I don't really know. I mean, I think it, it, it's, it's a deep psychological sort of 
a project to work out quite how Malcolm Turbull's reconciled himself to to not just signing up to but now owning Tony Abbott's policy in climate change and in many respects in energy as well, a policy that he really did um, uh, analyse forensically back in 2009-2010 when Greg Hunt first released it as to use his language, a fig leaf to cover a determination to do nothing. Absolutely. And, and, it's, and as you say, he crossed the floor to vote with your emissions trading scheme. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, I think we, we saw very clearly uh, around the time that Turnbull challenged and then beat Abbott back in 2015 that there was a very clear commitment that he made to the right wing of his own party, but also to the National Party, that he would not change the um, Abbott policies in climate change and energy. And we understand that that was a written commitment in the coalition agreement between the Liberal Party and the National Party. But bizarrely, um, we've never, the, the, the community's never been able to see that agreement, I think, a no. position that would be unthinkable in other democracies where there are these sorts of coalition agreements. For example, the one that Theresa May has only just concluded with the DUP from Northern Ireland. I mean, these are public record documents, except here in Australia, where they're a secret. Indeed, indeed. Hey, look, I've got a secret hope that maybe Malcolm Turnbull's greatest um, desire is to last at least a day longer than Tony Abbott did as Prime Minister. So maybe past September 12th, which will be the anniversary of that time when he served a day longer, and he'll no longer be regarded as the shortest serving um, Prime Minister, maybe then he'll be, um, he'll actually um, start implementing some of those policies. But um, it, Well, maybe. I think we, I think we overanalyse uh, personalities in this issue, though, as well. I mean, I, I dealt with the argument in, in the book that's made a lot around the circumstances of 2009 and 2010, that Kevin Rudd um, wasn't sort of conciliatory enough to Malcolm Turnbull as we were trying to develop a bipartisan position with the, with the Liberal Coalition, Liberal National Coalition. And I think that I'll try to make the point, although reasonable people can disagree about this, that, that Malcolm and Kevin were both in very ferocious fights about a whole range of policy areas. And Malcolm had just tried to defenestrate Kevin over the so-called Utegate affair. And things were pretty torrid back then in the wake of the global financial crisis. But even if Kevin had been nicer to Malcolm, Malcolm's problem wasn't Kevin Rudd's attitude. Malcolm's problem was that the right wing of the coalition was on the move. And that's the problem we face, um, have faced all through the past decade. It's not and about we, and we still Malcolm Turnbull. It's a body of opinion in the Liberal and National Coalition that just has a profoundly different worldview about these things. It's a, it's a policy and philosophy divide, not a personality divide. And you also make note of the uh, media as well. Um, it's been almost uh, more vociferous than, um, than some of the corporates and, and some of the company pushback. And it's been... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How, how do you explain it? Well, I, I honestly can't. I, I, don't, I don't pretend to understand it. Um, uh, the Murdoch, the Murdoch uh, print in particular, mainly the Australian, but some of the tabs that don't focus so much on this area uh, just clearly have a very strong editorial line on this, which is interesting given the position that the Murdoch empire took um, several years ago globally uh, about this, where they appeared to be shifting in favour of climate action many years ago. That's obviously reversed, at least in Australia. And um, some of the, some of the uh, radio talkback so-called shock jocks, particularly in Sydney, have a really, really hard line on this policy area. As you say, much harder uh, line than than even a range of business interests that, 
that have skin in the game here. Because I'm just thinking of just what we've seen over the last few months and what came out in the Finkel review and what's actually what, what the point that you make in the book is that the new technologies, wind and solar and storage, are cheaper than what we have now or certainly replicating what we have now. That just does not seem to sink in. And I'm just wondering, the population seems to understand that. Um, I'm just wondering how that then becomes you know, a, a, a common currency of thought. And that's why I talk about this parallel universe. I mean, the, the population support, particularly for the transition in electricity, has been really resilient. Um, the, the, there was polling done about our 50% renewable energy target back in July 2015 when we first announced it. And it was very strong, uh, very strong support, including strong support from coalition voters. And even after the, the torrid attacks on renewable energy that followed the South Australian blackout, in September, wherein sometimes in Parliament we would have 10 Dorothy Dixes in a row in question time with the Prime Minister and various other ministers castigating rene renewable energy. Even after that, that big, long, full frontal attack from the government and from vast parts of the media in Australia, community support for a 50% renewable energy target had not, had not budged one bit. If anything, actually, my recollection is that the Liberal Party support for it had increased by 10% over the course of that period. So, so there's just a completely different sort of discord in the view in the community and the realities, as you say, Giles, about the economics of renewable energy on the one hand and these fictions that continue to be written in too many of our newspapers. Indeed. In fact, it's um, a bit, bit, bit ironic. I think this week we've actually seen the announcement of the, um, the proposed purchase of the Wyala steel plant. And um, if we go back and we remember that Wyala was the town that uh, Tony Abbott warned would be wiped off the map by the carbon price. And here we have an international buyer talking about coming in, buying this steel plant and greening it because it says to make it viable, we actually need to be smarter about the way it produces electricity, the way it manages its energy. And so it's talking about pumped hydro, wind storage and co-generation. Um, and this is, this is happening all around the world. I made the point when I was launching the book earlier this week about how, just, how, how far the UK has come, uh, particularly including during an era of pretty substantial political turmoil after the Brexit vote. They continue to implement these very ambitious carbon budgets, but they do so in a way that's, that's maintaining a strong industrial base. I mean, the UK, in spite of getting very deep cuts in their carbon pollution, a big transition in their energy system, which will see coal essentially uh, removed from the electricity generation sector over the next few years, they still produce three times as much steel as Australia, and they have 800,000 workers in the automotive industry. You know, we're about to close our automotive manufacturing sector. So this idea again that Tony Abbott tried to promulgate that you can't have a clean energy transition and an industrial base at the same time, again, is just a fiction. Uh, and um, you know, what's happening in Wyala is an example of that. Yeah, and we're seeing it in, in, in other places too. Now let's get back to your your vision and, and, and the way you want to take it forward because your, your policy is based, well, significantly around the 50% renewable energy target. But as you mentioned in the book, this is actually a whole of economy transition. So how do we actually manage that? Um, do we have the foundations of what can achieve that through the Finkel Review? Are the institutions or the structures going to be in place from that, or do we need to go even further than what's contemplated there? Well, I think Finkel, the Finkel review is only um, a part of the answer. I think we need to recognise that. But in terms of building confidence and a, and, a, and a platform for some 
more political consensus. It's, it's a very important part of the answer. I guess in broad terms, before I come to Finkel, the, the lesson that, that I think we've learned both in our own experience and looking overseas uh, is um, this whole of economy reform can't just be driven by a single whole of economy policy framework. I mean, the, the orthodoxy 10 years ago was you set a whole of economy carbon price and sit back and watch the, watch the thing just transform in front of your eyes. And I think, um, I think more analysis, better analysis now shows that you need a, uh, more of a horses for courses approach to different sectors of the economy. And that's sort, certainly the approach we've taken. So if you divide the, the, the sectors of the Australian economy up, into their major areas, uh, which is what I try to do in the book. You have a particular approach, obviously, in, in electricity, which produces a third of our carbon pollution. We can come back to that, but you have an approach then in the so land the, sector. So the you thing, have an approach in transport. Yeah, sorry to interrupt there, actually. No, mm. I, I, I'll let you get going, but I was just gonna just jump in there with the electricity sector. Does the Finkel at least address that bit? Well, Finkel, Finkel starts to address that bit. I mean, what we need is, is a, a framework for investment that recognises that investment's going to involve a transition to clean energy. Um, and as you know, our, our preference has been for a couple of years now to move to an emissions intensity scheme, uh, which is quite different to the recommendation from Finkel. But just given the dire condition of the electricity sector now, um, we've, we've decided to put aside our preferred policy position, a policy position we took to the last election, and, um, and indicate a willingness to sit down with the government around a clean energy target. Now, we think a clean energy target can do the job. Uh, I don't think it will do it as effectively as an emissions intensity scheme, but it can do the job, um, uh, provided you get the settings right. Uh, I mean, exactly I, I've, right also, I've also been very clear that I think the level of ambition that underpins the Finkel report is too low, is inconsistent and, and profoundly inconsistent with the Paris Agreement. So we need to recognise this thing, this thing, the clean energy target, must have a level of flexibility in it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking, you started to go through the different sectors and might let you do that, but um, it's particularly interesting in transport sector. Um, as you mentioned in your book, at various points in time, and particularly with the Climate Change Authority, there's been recommended to have emission standards, at least vehicle emission standards in Australia. We don't actually have any, yet we've got other countries like France overnight announced that it's going to ban sales of anything other than electric vehicles by 2040. We don't even have the basic emission standards in Australia. <laughs> we That's right, we're, prof <laughs> we're so far behind the rest of the world on, on vehicles, it's, it's not funny. It's not just the developed world. 80% of the global car market now is covered by mandatory emission standards and I can't think of another developed economy that doesn't have them. Uh, and I make the point, and the Climate Change Authority made this point in 2014, that you can now, um, that we now buy dirtier versions of the global brands, say for example a Toyota Corolla, than you legally can buy in North America or Europe or the UK. The Climate Change Authority made the point that those global brands that you buy everywhere uh, on average are 20% less polluting in the UK than they are here just because we don't have mandatory emission standards. And if you buy a Toyota Corolla in the UK, it will be half as polluting per kilometre travelled, half as polluting as the Toyota Corolla you buy here in Australia. I mean, that's just utterly crazy. It is. So the, the government's had this report from the Climate Change Authority since June 2014, so now for more than three years that simply recommended that we adopt the, the uh, Obama standards, 
so which would result in a 45% reduction in um, carbon pollution per kilometre travelled. And they've sat on it for more than three years. And they've been sitting on energy efficiency as well. Um, Absolutely. And I, th and I think that is, so getting mandatory emission standards is the critical sort of short to medium term um, policy that needs to be put in place while you then think about how quickly we can ramp up electric vehicles. And that does require some uh, some policy coordination from a national government. I mean, we buy next to no electric vehicles here in Australia. They're hardly available. Uh, yeah, hardly available at all in spite of the fact that we have a... Uh, a, a broader range of traditional vehicles, internal combustion vehicles. Mm -hmm. We have a bigger range of cars available to Australian consumers, even than the United States. We're an incredibly diverse car market, but you can hardly buy an electric vehicle. Norway, for example, which has a very strong suite of policies encouraging take-up of electric vehicles. I only saw in the last couple of weeks their 2016 figures, which shows that one in three new vehicles bought in Norway now is an EV. The figure was one in four back in 2015. Mm. The latest show it's already one in three. So this does this will take a bit of time to to put in place because you know we we don't turn our, our fleet over very quickly, uh, but it does need some attention now. Well, we have to start. Have you driven an electric vehicle? No, I've been in one. I haven't driven one. Oh, I think you should. My theory is that if you take all the politicians in Canberra and put them in a Tesla or an electric vehicle, then they might just change the whole view about things. But um, but then our Prime Minister has also driven a Tesla and has raved about it, but that doesn't seem to have had much of an effect either. So, And the tragic <laughs> loss of car manufacturing, which I think is a terrible thing for our economy. And I live in Adelaide. I mean, I've got a number of, of um, Tier 1, Tier 2 suppliers in my electorate of Port Adelaide, that um, many of which are going to close over the next several months. I mean, a massive act of economic self-harm, but the loss of car manufacturing uh, does mean that we can take a different approach to transport policy than, than perhaps the approach that we had when we were a, a car manufacturing nation. And I think that, gets, that, that brings it all down to the, to the, to the nub of the problem. Um, Labor has talked about 50% renewable energy targets uh, and higher emission reduction targets. It gets rubbished and ridiculed by the, um, the government and, and many in the media. The reality is that we have to go probably harder and faster and we need to be talking about, as the Climate Change Authority says, zero emissions before 2050. We've been given a pathway to that, say from the CSIRO and the, um, and the networks um, lobby, at least in the electricity sector. These things are doable um, but when we start talking about these scale of transitions, that just seems to be too scary for people to contemplate. Um, how do we get over that? And well, it, well uh, I guess the point I make in the book is it's very hard while you have one of the major parties of government in the country uh, running scare campaigns and saying it can't be done uh, or saying that if it can be done, it, it, it would only happen at an intolerable cost to current generations. Uh, and that, that is the problem I think Australia faces. We need to get beyond this position that, that really, I mean, frankly, was there during the Howard government. I mean, John Howard was playing the same role that Tony Abbott has played over the last 10 years. But mm. we need to get beyond that and, and discover some sort of consensus of the type you see in the UK, where, mm. where once you get that political consensus, uh, you really can see things change very quickly and particularly as we see renewable energy costs really tip over a, a tipping point over the last couple of years and electric vehicles become much more scalable 
you will start to see a big shift if there's the political will. Well, we saw this week or last week, and we wrote a couple of stories about a speech that was given by Don Harwin, who's the New South Wales Energy Minister and from a mm. coalition government. And it seemed to be quite an enlightened speech and something that I would have thought that Labor would have been able to deal with and have a conversation about because basically recognising some of the trends, it kind of highlighted to me that within the government and within these political parties, there's not total opposition. It's just... Um, it's just a part of it and a very influential part of it. And the New South Wales Liberal Government policy a position of uh, net zero emissions by 2050 is a really, really important um, shift, I think. Uh, you know, compare that, for example, to the uh, underpinning assumptions in the Finkel report that would see the electricity sector only get to zero emissions in 2070. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that's a profoundly different position to the one that New South Wales Liberal Government has set out. I think it is very important that we, um, that we have a debate about the mid-century position. We've had a position of net zero emissions by 2050 out there for a couple of years now. Yeah. Uh, the New South Wales Liberal Government has followed us, other state governments have as well. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think the, the, the position advanced by Greg Hunt and more recently by Josh Frydenberg about reaching zero emissions sometime in the second half of the century is just unacceptable and, and fundamentally inconsistent with the Paris Agreement. And so that would have been very frustrating to see that almost replicated in the Finkel Review. It seemed like an opportunity to wind that forward. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. The um, so, what's your vision? What does it zero? We'll just come to the close here. What's your vision then? What does a twenty? What does a net zero emission society or economy look like in twenty fifty for Australia? Well, it's an economy where you will have seen the energy system transition in a way that gives Australia a very strong comparative advantage. I mean, there's wonderful analysis by Bloomberg New Energy Finance about the levelised cost of wind and solar in Australia compared to China, the US, Europe and India. And we have a very substantial cost advantage in solar and wind across all of those other jurisdictions because of the efficiency levels at which our wind turbines run and the solar resource we have here in Australia. So once the transition is done, we return to the sort of cost advantage we had in energy under the 20th century economy of fossil fuels. And then you can see manufacturing strongly growing and all those sorts of things again. We'll also, I hope, see um, a system where there's much more democratisation of energy. You see a lot more behind the meter management of generation and of consumption with integration, obviously, of smart appliances and transport, so, so electric vehicles, allowing households to have much more control over the way in which they generate and consume their energy, all integrated through the Internet of Things. And I think lastly, and we don't talk enough about this, we will also see a very different approach to the management of our land resources. I was just up in far north Queensland uh, talking to people about the Great Barrier Reef. One of the very strong concerns of, of UNESCO, the World Heritage Committee, about the sustainability plan for the Great Barrier Reef is that Australia has not been able to get broad-scale land clearing back under control in North Queensland after the um, repeal of all of Peter Beattie's restrictions by the Campbell Newman government. Now, that has probably resulted in about 20 million tonnes of carbon dioxide additional going into the atmosphere, which is the equivalent of doubling the number of cars and trucks on New South Wales roads. So we've got to get that back under control. And I think we can do it by setting up a vibrant carbon farming market that, that, that produces some economic incentive for our land sector to, to see um, the land sector as not just a great way to rebuild our biodiversity 
and our sustainability, but also to act as a very substantial carbon sink. Look, and um, that sort of reminds us about the um, the issue about the science. Are you confident that we, and well, I guess it's the world because it's a, it's a it's a global issue. Do you think we can actually meet those Paris targets? Do you think we can bring the um, global warming under control? And um, if we do, how how will we know? Well, uh, I think it's going to be very very challenging to keep global warming well below two degrees. Uh, and I'm not sure that anyone yet understands what well below two degrees means. But the IPCC is going to, as you know, do some important work next year on a new carbon budget analysis for that metric, which is, I think, going to be even more challenging uh, than the carbon budget assumptions that we've been making, for example, for the targets that the Climate Change Authority has recommended that we adopt. It is going to be really hard. And frankly, we can't afford to continue the sort of um, indulgence of anti-science agendas that we see here in Australia from uh, particularly the right wing of the coalition and some in the media and you see again emerging in the United States. It's, it's a betrayal to our current economic circumstances, but it's a particular betrayal of future generations. Now is the time to act. We have the technology available to us in a scalable form, in a cost-effective form for the first time ever. This is the time we should be accelerating our transition to give us the best possible chance of meeting those Paris Agreement commitments. Indeed. Well, look, on that note, um, we'll just end it there. Look, Mark, um, congratulations on your book and thanks very much for joining us. Great to talk to you.